All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to be back with you uh, together again this week. And uh, again, happy Easter. Uh, I know it was a week ago, and I hope the time certainly was a good one for you. Uh, ideally, we could have been together, um, but it is, as we've been saying, what it is. Uh, but hopefully it was a sweet time for you to just consider, to meditate, to just spend some time considering uh, in a fresh way, the power of the resurrection and the implication of the resurrection in our lives together. You know, just uh, before Easter Sunday, as, as I was thinking about it, one of the things that, that hit me is, uh, in reality, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. You recall that uh, the early, uh, early disciples of Jesus Christ, that uh, they were Jews, and they celebrated their Sabbath on the Saturday, but after the resurrection of Christ, they began to commemorate it on a Sunday, uh, because every Sunday when we gather together, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and not just this idea that one day I'll get to go to heaven, but the power of the resurrection in our lives today uh, is something that we can rejoice in. Remember what we learned last week, Jesus said, because I live, you will live. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. Isn't that good news? Romans 6.4 goes on to say, just as Christ was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of that life. And so we rejoice in that. And, and I hope you were encouraged last week uh, to run your race well, to walk your walk uh, well in the power of Christ. I was reminded as I was considering these things, and, and this is all the intro, we're going to get into the real text in a moment, but I was reminded as I was considering these things that the Apostle Paul, as he wrestled with his flesh and he wrestled with this tendency to go back and to do those things he didn't want to do and to um, not do the things that he did and, and what, is, what is wrong with me and all those things, he eventually concludes Romans chapter 7 and he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I, I have to imagine many of us watching today, we've been in that place, that, that place where we come to the end of ourselves and we, we think of ourselves as a wretched man indeed, uh, like the, the author to Amazing Grace uh, as he, he put that into the words of that famous song there. Uh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the body of death that, that Paul's talking about is that tendency to just keep on going back to those things he didn't want to do uh, and those things he had committed himself to doing, not doing those things. And he was just so frustrated with himself. He cries out, he asks that question, and then notice uh, the words that he says in chapter 7, verse 25 of Romans. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where does the deliverance come from? It comes from Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the power of the resurrection for today in the life of the Christian, that we can walk in the newness of life and that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in each one of us. We rejoice in that. It's good news. Now, that's not why we're here today, though. Uh, our, that's not going to be our study today. Our study today is to return to the book of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Would you begin scrolling there, turning there, getting yourself uh, to Mark chapter 12. And as you're doing that, I'll remind you that in Mark chapter 11, we began the final week of Jesus's life here on the earth, his physical life during his public ministry here on the earth. It began on that Sunday. We learned about it a few weeks back as Jesus triumphantly 
entered into the city of Jerusalem, set himself up on that donkey, fulfilled the scriptures, made his way to the temple, and essentially declared to the Jewish people, the religious leaders in particular, that God's Messiah, the anointed one of God, is here. Uh, And then we saw that he made his way back home uh, for the evening or to the home that he was staying at. And then he came back the next day and he began to engage uh, there uh, with cleaning the temple because of all the just the stuff, the junk that was going on there. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and all those things. And we spent some time looking at that. And then two weeks ago, just before Easter, when we were together, we came to Tuesday. So Sunday comes into the city, Monday cleanses the temple, Tuesday went back to the temple, uh, and it seems as if the religious leaders were waiting for him. And so they come, they find him, and they begin to pepper him with questions. Who are you? What gives you the right to do this? By whose authority? And all these things. And they're asking that. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 27. It reads there that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to Jesus and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And we we dug into that. And you can go back, you can uh, find that sermon online, watch it, listen to it, whatever Uh, you need to do here. But that was Jesus's initial interaction on that Tuesday, I imagine in the morning or sometime in the early morning, uh, early afternoon of that day. And you recall that Jesus responded to their question about his authority, and he asked them a question. And he said, all right, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. And his question again was, uh, you know, John the Baptist, where did his authority come from? And that sent them all into this quandary, and if we say this, then he'll say that, and if we say that, then he'll say this. And so they don't actually come back and uh, answer Jesus' question. They say, we don't know. And Jesus is like, you know. But he says, since you're not going to tell me what the real answer is, I'm not going to tell you either, because you're not going to listen anyway. And from chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to where we're going to get to today, chapter 12, verse 34, you have sort of these back and forth confrontations that are taking place between Jesus and various people right there in the temple, the religious leaders in particular right there in the temple. And as we learn, Jesus tells them a parable. Uh, It's about the vineyard, and uh, notice verse 12 of chapter 12. It says they perceived that this parable was about them. Uh, It wasn't a very uh, glowing parable. It wasn't a positive parable. And so, once again, they're offended, they're bothered um, by this, but they realize they, they don't really have uh, a sufficient plan uh, to trap Jesus. That was their goal. They wanted to sort of stop Jesus from doing what he was doing, and, and everything they've been trying so far hasn't been working. And so, uh, as you look at the end of verse 12, it says, so they left and they went away. Now, they go away not because they're done dealing with Jesus. They go away so that they can... Uh, they can have a little conversation. They, they have this little meeting. It's a strategy session. All right, those ideas didn't work. Who has ideas? Come on. No idea is a dumb idea. Put it up on the whiteboard here. We're going to try and figure out the best way to trip up this Jesus fella here. And that brings us now to two, maybe three confrontations. Uh, you'll see the third one is sort of like it's hard to tell the fella's motivations. But the first two we definitely know. And it starts in verse 13, the first confrontation uh, following their regrouping. 
And I'm going to read it to you. Starting in 13, it says, Now they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Here's our question. Is it lawful to pay the taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or should we not pay the taxes? Jesus, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why do you put me to the test or why do you try to test me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought him one and he said to them, and whose likeness and whose inscription is on this? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, in a good sense, they were frustrated. They were bothered by what he shared with them. Now, look back at chapter 11, verse 27. It's a page back in my Bible. And you'll notice it says there, as they were walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, verse 28, and they said. And so verse 28 gives you the indicator of who the they is here in chapter 12, verse 13. It's the same crowd, the same group of chief priests, the same group of elders and scribes and Pharisees are coming to the Lord, but now they've come with a plan. They've come with a scheme that they developed in order to trap the Lord, as it says there in verse 13. So their goal now is either going to be to discredit him or to put him at odds with the governing authorities, one way or the other. If they can discredit him with the people, then the people won't follow him anymore. If they can put him at odds with the governing authorities, the Roman governing authorities, well, then they can get him thrown in jail somewhere, and he won't have any more influence any longer. One way or another, what they're trying to do is shut up this Galilee rabbi who thinks he can come down here to Jerusalem and you know take our thunder uh, and these kinds of things here. And so they send this small group. Now, the group they send is comprised, 13 tells us, of Pharisees and Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians. Now, the plan that I suspect there is to make it look like they're asking Jesus to solve a dispute between the Pharisees and the Herodians because the Pharisees and the Herodians were on the complete opposite sides of the extreme in first century Jerusalem. The Herodians, they were supporters of King Herod. Uh, and so what Herod wanted is what they were good with, Jewish people and all of that, but they were sort of content to support Herod so that they could have their place within the kingdom, within uh, the nation here, which was under the rule of the Roman authorities. That's the Herodians. The Pharisees wanted no part to, uh, with Rome. They, they, if they could, they would overthrow the Herod and so on. So these guys were on opposite sides of the extreme. G. Campbell Morgan, he said, it was an iniquitous and unholy coalition. Two groups which typically hated one another, despised one another, and wanted nothing to do with one another, now join together because they have a common enemy. As the old expression is, the enemy of my enemy is my friends. Well, that's what's going on here. These two enemies come together uh, because they're against the Lord. And so they come with sort of this question here. It's very clear in 13 that the whole purpose of the question is to trap the Lord. They begin in verse 14 by buttering the Lord up a little bit. 
They say, we know that you're true. We know that you don't care about other people's opinions. We know that you're not swayed by appearances, but that you truly teach the word of God. They're buttering Jesus up. And then they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus sees right through their flattery. He says, bring me a coin. He says, bring me a denarius. Now, I, I do find it interesting that the Lord himself didn't have a denarius for his pocket. He didn't have a coin that he could have had in his own pocket that he could bring out. And so he calls to others. He says, bring me a coin. He borrows a coin for the moment, holds it up there in front of the people. And he says, and whose picture is this? And so we have our coins. We got George Washington on the quarter and I think it's Lincoln on the penny and and other coins with people's heads on them and stuff. And so Jesus now, he takes his little coin. It has the Caesar's head there on it. It has an inscription above Caesar, essentially calling him uh, the divine uh, emperor and so on. And he said, whose inscription is this? Whose picture is this? And notice they answer, it's Caesar's. And that coin bore daily for the Jewish people the, the image of the one that had conquered the Jewish people. And there were, it was a daily reminder of the Jews, they hated it. There were some Jews that refused to even use the coin because of the things that it said about the Caesar and uh, the image of the Caesar and the reminder to them of the way in which they were under the rule of the Romans. Most people paid the taxes grudgingly, but there were some that wouldn't even touch the coin. Jesus says, bring me one of these coins. Whose picture is on it? They say it is Caesar's. And then Jesus responds and he says, well, then if it has Caesar's pictures on it, picture on it, it must be Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And then he says, and give to God that which belongs to God. Since Caesar's image was stamped on the coin, Jesus reasons, well, then the coin must belong to him. And then he goes further and he says, and because God's image is stamped onto you, then you belong to God. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. And they realized that the trap they had tried to set for Jesus didn't work. It essentially ensnared them. They're the ones essentially reminded that they got to give more of their lives to the Lord since his image is stamped on them. And so it says in verse 17, they marvel at him. They, they didn't trap him. They were the ones that were ensnared. Well, so they leave, and I kind of have this picture where they sort of start filing out stage left, and as they are leaving, another group comes filing in from stage right, and this group here, we learn in verse 18, are the Sadducees, and I'll read up until the end of this little section or halfway through the section. It says, now the Sadducees came to him, those who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked Jesus a question, saying, teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, then the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And seven left no offspring. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For seven had her as wife. Now, 
It's important to take notice of the descriptor that Mark uses as he's sort of developing what's going on here. Notice that he says he calls them Sadducees, and then he says they're Sadducees. No, I'm sorry. He says he calls them Sadducees. There's an old joke. You, you know why they're sad? You see, is because they didn't believe in their. But that's dumb. So let's move on. Anyway, it says he calls them the Sadducees, and then he describes them as those who say there is no resurrection. But notice, they say there's no resurrection, but then they go on to ask a question about the resurrection. And like the Herodians before, like the Pharisees that had just come before them, the, the Sadducees, they're not really interested in finding out the answer to this particular question. What they want to do is discredit the Lord, and they want to hinder his influence on the people. And so the political tempt of the Herodians and the Pharisees, that failed. And so now these Sadducees enter in, and they come in with, if you will, a theological attempt to discredit the Lord, a question designed to trip him up, a theological one. And what they do is they paint this ridiculous scenario of a woman who is married to seven different brothers, all of whom have died, and then they question, all right, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, if I may, I think the better question is, what's going on with this woman that all seven of these guys are dying while I'm married to her? Somebody might want to investigate that. But that, that's not the point of what's going on here. What we have here are the Sadducees. Let me get a drink of water. I'm excited. Hold on one second. The Sadducees, you need a little background. They were very, very well educated, perhaps the best educated of the religious leaders of the day. They were sort of the sophisticated of society. They were very influential, and they typically had their hands on the majority of the wealth uh, of the society. So well-educated, sophisticated, influential, wealthy. At this particular point in time in Jewish history, here in this interaction that we're reading about here, uh, they were the most powerful sect of Judaism. They sort of maintained kind of the, the controlling um, body of power within the Jewish religious leaders of the day and the priesthood, the Sanhedrin and so on. They would be the intellectual elite of their day. And the Sadducees looked at ideas like the resurrection or heaven or angels and spirits and things like that, they looked at those things as almost childish or childlike. They, they saw people that believed in those things, embraced those things as being naive. And if they were just a little more educated like we are, then they wouldn't buy into such silly, cute, fanciful ideas like the tooth fairy or something like that. And so they come to Jesus, they paint this ridiculous and absurd scenario, uh, and it's as if they're going to paint Jesus into this corner where this uneducated rabbi of Galilee is going to have to buy into this silly idea. They're trying to mock the Lord is what they're trying to do. And so they come with this scenario about a man, a woman marrying a, a secession of brothers uh, because each of them have died before um, she was able to bear children. Now, that practice is unusual to you and I. Uh, any of us who, who have a brother, uh, that any of us ladies that have a brother who perhaps has died, we, we don't think about, or we have a husband who has perhaps died, we don't think about marrying the brother or something like that. Um, and so that practice is unusual to us, but it's actually a practice which was uh, presented to us in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses actually presents us 
that that is what needs to occur. That if in this particular event, uh, a woman's husband had passed away then, and she had no kids, then she would marry the next brother. And through him, a child would be raised up and so on. That's called the Levite marriage. And it was designed so that offspring could be raised up uh, for a husband's brother. The word Leverite, it comes from the word, it's a Latin word, actually. I always assumed that it had something to do with the tribe of Levi. It, it actually doesn't. It comes from a Latin word, uh, which I'll try and pronounce, Lever, L-E-V-I-R. And that literally means a husband's brother. And so it has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. It's this idea of a husband's brother raising up offspring for himself. And if you go back to the Deuteronomy 25 passage, Moses explains why this needed to take place, why this has to happen. It says in verse 6 of chapter 25, And the first son whom she bears to this new husband now, to the brother, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out, of Israel. And so it's in the Old Testament. These Sadducees, they understand the scenario. When they, when they bring this idea about a second brother and a third brother marrying this woman, they have a right understanding of the scripture here. And so intellectually, they're able to understand the scripture. But you'll notice they refuse to pay heed to and to give understanding to other things that are taught in the scripture, like the resurrection like angels, like spirits, like the afterlife, and so on and so forth. And so they come to Jesus with this scenario purposefully designed to make Jesus look silly. And their question, it reminds me of the question uh, that you hear. I, I remember being in philosophy class in college. Somehow I ended up in this junior level philosophy as a freshman who had no idea of what was going on and what these people were talking about, but with just simple logic. I think I hate to say I think I was smarter than most of the kids in the class because I wasn't being tied down with all these silly concepts and ideas. And you have that question. This question is how many angels can God fit on the head of a pin? Let's debate that for three long class hours. Or if God is God so big that he can create a rock that he himself can't pick up to debate the omni. Uh, omnipotence of the Lord. Is God so powerful that he can make a rock he can't pick up? Well, then no. Well, then he must not be all... And you could have that debate for three hours and get nowhere by the end of your time together here. That's what their question reminds me of, those classic questions of the skeptics designed essentially uh, not to really come to an answer here, but to avoid truth. And the Sadducees are doing that. And just like the Herodians, just like the Pharisees, they think that they got Jesus. We got Jesus now. But you'll notice as we continue our reading that Jesus, if you will, ends up getting them. They're the ones that end up ensnared. Jesus goes on in verse 24. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, Jesus says on two different occasions here, you are quite wrong. 
He says in another place, you do not know, or don't you know? He'll ask that question, implying that they don't. Now, remember, these are the, the intellectual elites of society, particularly as it relained to, uh, pertained to religious matters. And on tw- two different occasions, Jesus says to them that they are wrong and that the reason that they are wrong, verse 24, is because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Again, some of the highest religious leaders of the day, and Jesus says to them that they're ignorant of God and the word of God. You know, I, I, the picture I had in mind is of the person who, maybe you've seen it in old movies, takes off the white gloves and slaps the person across the face. It seems like, in a sense, that's what Jesus is doing here. Publicly, in front of all these people, they would have been shocked by such a statement coming from him. And Jesus then, he goes on and he explains the reason for their ignorance, but he he doesn't answer their absurd question. But what he does is he uses their absurd question to reveal just how little they actually understand about things in the resurrection. (coughs) He says, you're wrong. You're wrong to inquire in verse 25 about whose wife she will be uh, because, he says, look, you want to know whose wife she is going to be in the resurrection? He says, you're wrong because you don't even understand that there really isn't such a thing as marriage in heaven, at least not the way that we understand it here upon the earth. He said, you don't even understand that basic aspect of how heaven works. And so your question doesn't really make any sense. He doesn't really answer the question here. Instead, what he does is he proceeds to dismantle their assumption on which their question is based. He says they don't marry, but instead they're like angels in heaven. That is, they like angels in heaven, they don't marry. They don't procreate or, or those sorts of things. Because in heaven, there's a different order of operation than there are here on the earth. And the Sadducees are revealing that they're ignorant of that particular truth. He says they're like the angels in heaven. If I could, <clears throat> let me just interject one very quick point. It's, it's kind of unrelated to what we're talking about here. But I want you to notice how Jesus talks about the dead in this life when they enter into the eternal, when they enter into heaven. He says that they are like the angels in heaven. You may want to circle that word like there. Because Jesus doesn't say when a person dies, they become an angel in heaven, but rather that they become like the angels in heaven. And in particular, he's referring to this idea of marriage and the giving of marriage. And I bring it up because oftentimes, you know, I'll see if I'm on Facebook or social media or something like that, and I'll see this obituary or I'll see someone's uh, statement that they're making about their grandmother or something like that that has just passed away. Though oftentimes, oftentimes I'll read, they'll say something like, you know, God needed another angel in heaven, and so he took my grandma. Or God got another angel, you know, because my, my cousin went to be with the Lord or something like that. Those ideas, they're not biblically accurate statements. The Bible's pretty clear. Angels are angels, and humans are humans. And when humans go to heaven, they don't become angels. They continue on as humans, certainly in a different form. 
So I thought it was appropriate. I'll throw it out now. I, I don't think it's appropriate in the comments to correct someone's theology when they're posting something about the grandmother that they had just lost. Uh, and so here we are. We're going verse by verse through the scriptures. We let all of the scriptures speak into our lives. And, and this was an opportunity to do so. So file that away um, for yourself. Now let's go back to our text. Jesus said they're like the angels in heaven. And coming back to the text, he says, 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the book, how God spoke to Moses and sort of the way in which he spoke to Moses? We'll talk about it. Now, that thought, they thought that they would put Jesus on the spot with this absurd scenario. Jesus ends up putting them on the spot and he challenges them. And now you'll notice he challenges them on their understanding of the writings of Moses. And that's a very interesting thing that the Lord does. Because you, you see, the Sadducees, in their, their elitism and all that sort of stuff, one of the things that the Sadducees did was rejected all the other writings of the Hebrew Scriptures except for the writings of Moses. And so they, had, they received... Uh, trusted in those first five books of Moses, but none others than that, none other than that. And so here now is Jesus saying, have you not read in the book of Moses? Well, of course they've read in the book of Moses because they're experts in the book of Moses. That's the only thing that the Sadducees would look at. And so Jesus then, he goes back to their scriptures. Imagine if Jesus chose something from the book of Isaiah, that wouldn't have meant anything to him. But he goes back to their scriptures and he shows them from their scriptures the way in which their theology is wrong and their theology is off. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses? And he points them to the passage about the burning bush. That's Exodus chapter 3. That's when Moses is out in the wilderness. He's on sort of the backside of the wilderness there, and he's, uh, he's a shepherd. He's working with his, uh, his flock there, and one of them kind of wandered off, and he goes and he finds that uh, little sheep or whatever it was, and there he sees a bush that is burning and yet not being consumed, and that was interesting to him. And so he stops and he engages with the bush, and in the process of communicating, not with the bush, but with the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, the Lord spoke to him. And the Lord said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, is what God spoke. You can go back and read Exodus chapter 3. And so Jesus points to it, he references it. Now what Jesus is doing is not so much referencing the specific words, but the tense of the words. That's what Jesus is trying to get to the tense in which the Lord spoke. And you'll notice God is saying, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The distinction would be, and it's not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, when, when God spoke to Moses, that was roughly around the year 1500 BC. Abraham lived in 2000 BC. Isaac and Jacob will, will narrow it down to about 1900 BC. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've been dead for four, five hundred years prior to God speaking to Moses here, and yet notice how the Lord speaks of them. He does not say, as I mentioned a moment ago, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though they died hundreds of years earlier, he still speaks of them as if they alive. And the, and the reason why he does is because they are still 
alive. These men, though physically dead for hundreds of years, spoken of by the Lord as if they are still presently alive, verifies the reality of the resurrection. And Jesus uses their scriptures to do so. And that reasoning silenced them. Notice, uh, well, we don't have it in Mark, but Luke, same passage in Luke, same account. Luke says this, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions or any more questions. In fact, one of the scribes that's on the scene there blurts out, uh, teacher, you have answered well. Now the scribes, some of the scribes were Sadducees, many of the scribes were Pharisees. Uh, And so there was sort of like uh, the Pharisees and scribes, they were opponents of one another, maybe not to the extent that the Herodians and the Pharisees were. But so some of these Pharisees uh, that are scribes are thinking, good answer, you put them in their place. We've been trying to do that for a while here. Um, But the Sadducees realize, look, I'm getting out of here. This guy's just making us look silly. And so they dare ask him no more questions. And again, Luke tells us that the scribes say, that's a good answer, Lord. Now, as we continue in the book of Mark, notice in verse 28, it says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing. And so maybe it was one of the scribes that just cried out, good answer. Maybe it was a different one. But one way or another, this scribe, he comes up, he hears this conversation that is going on, and seeing that Jesus answered well, he asked him, uh, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 28. Now Jesus answered, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I'll just continue the whole story to give us the context. It says, now the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All right, so we have this group of scribes. Uh, led by one in particular. Now, the scribes, as I was saying, I I described a little bit earlier, the scribes specifically were considered experts in the law. Some of your versions, if you're reading, I think the NIV, for instance, uh, it doesn't use the word scribes, it uses the word lawyers. Um, And when we talk about law, we're not talking about like a a present-day lawyer, an attorney or something like that. We're talking about those that were experts in the law of Moses. Those were the scribes. And those scribes, as experts in the law of Moses, they knew all 613 commandments from the Old Testament, and they knew the common understanding of all 613 of those commandments, and they knew the common interpretation of the various rabbis of those 613 commandments. These guys were experts in the law. And so that's why it's kind of peculiar that they're going to come to this rabbi from Galilee, which um, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth, and ask him his his opinion. And so it it causes us to think that they're trying to get Jesus somehow here or belittle Jesus somehow here, but we don't know that for sure. 
And so maybe this guy is, tr- is trying to trap the Lord, or maybe he really respects the Lord and wants to get him to weigh in on this particular point here. We don't know one way or the other. Either way, though, this guy, he comes and he asks the question, what's the most important commandment of them all? And Jesus does an interesting thing in answering their question, because rather than pointing to one particular command, which he does, but rather than just simply pointing to one particular command, don't murder people, do that and you're good to go. You know, don't steal from people. Rather than just pointing to one particular command, Jesus essentially, he summarizes all of the commands. And he says to the guy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. As he did a moment ago with the Sadducees, he takes this guy back to the book of Deuteronomy. This time he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Famous verses in the Bible, they're what the Jewish people refer to as the Shema, Uh, They repeated regularly every time the Jews would come to prayer, even today, as they would come to prayer in the morning, as they'd come to prayer in the evening, they would quote this particular passage before going on to perhaps some of their other more specific prayers. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That first word in that verse, the word hear, in Hebrew, it's the word Shema. And so it's why this is called the Shema. And talk to any, I guess, practicing Jew, they'll know it. They're familiar with it. They recite it multiple times every single day. Jesus, they, the man asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He says, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He, he doesn't go on from there, but essentially says, look, you do that, and all the rest of God's commands are taken care of. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, well, then you have no room in your heart to fall down and worship and serve false idols, which is one of the other commandments. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, then you have no room in your heart to take the name of the Lord God in vain, which is another one of the commandments that is presented to us. And so what does Jesus do? He points to this one commandment, and in doing so, encompasses, sums up, covers all the rest of the commandments that are found, specifically those commandments that deal with our relationship, a man's relationship or woman's relationship with God. What's the most important commandment? That's the most important commandment. Now, the scribe doesn't ask, but Jesus is going to give him a bonus commandment. You ask for the most important one, I'm going to give you the second most important one as well. And so he says in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these two. And this time, Jesus quotes from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. May I just say, if you've ever felt that there were certain portions of the Bible that you you didn't need to bother reading, books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and maybe some of the other less popular books, know that Jesus went back to those books often. I've said it before, the most common book Jesus quoted from in the Gospels is the book of Deuteronomy. 
And so I, I just strongly advise you, don't neglect certain portions of your scriptures. For as the Apostle Paul said, all scripture is useful. It's God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and in training in righteousness, so that the man of God would be complete. Don't neglect portions of the scripture. Jesus goes back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, and there it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, look at what Jesus has done. The first, the greatest of commandments, deals with man's responsibility to God. The second of the commandments deals with man's responsibility to his fellow man. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. On your own sometime, go back and look at the commandments, particularly the Ten Commandments. They're recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And as you go back and as you read them, begin to sort of divide them up into two categories. And what you'll notice is, is that a portion of those commandments speak about a man's responsibility, a woman's responsibility and relationship with God. And a portion of those commandments speak about a man or a woman's responsibility in their relationship with those that are around them. It's an interesting study because it all boils down to this your relationship with God, and your relationship with those that are around you. And your responsibility, Jesus is saying here, your responsibility as a follower of Christ is to love God more than yourself and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what you were created to do. And as we were reminded at the start of our time together this morning, that's what you and I as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, that's what you and I have been empowered to do by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Love God and love others. And we, if we do those two things, we have fulfilled all the commandments of the law. Jesus will say that in another place. I'll get to that. Picking up in verse 32, Jesus says, the scribe says to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said, something, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all of the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than burnt offering and sacrifices. Now, either this guy is coming to the Lord to test the Lord, uh, believed all along what the number one scripture was and just wanted to see if Jesus agreed with him or the guy is sincerely seeking to hear Jesus weigh in on this particular issue. And if that's the case, then he truly does seem to be impressed with Jesus's answer here. He says, uh, you are right. You have answered well, he, he says there. And then he adds something. He said, you're right that it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and then he adds there toward the end of verse 33, to do those things, he says, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so he's agreeing with the Lord and he's confirming what the Lord has said by pointing to another of the scriptures. And he points to a reference in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15, it reads this way, Hath the Lord such great delight? in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And then 
Uh, remember these words? He says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, if you're not familiar with that passage, let me just quickly give you some of the background. The king of, at the time of Israel was Saul. The prophet of Israel was a fellow by the name of Samuel. Samuel, the book named after him, he's the one who just said those words that I read. And King Saul, uh, leading the nation of Israel, was to go out into battle against King Agag and the Amalekites. And the Lord had told Saul, when you go into battle and you defeat King Agag and the Amalekites and so on, he says, what I want you to do is go into battle and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, he says. Devote to destruction all that they have. But what we learn from 1 Samuel 15 is rather than doing that, instead of devoting all those things to destruction, Saul and those he was leading instead, instead decide they're going to spare the king. And as it says in verse 9, they're going to keep the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs. They're going to keep all that was good. Now you'll notice though at the end of verse 9, while all that was despised and worthless, that they would devote to destruction that they would be obedient to the Lord with. And so those worthless uh, and despised things, that's what they presented to the Lord as an offering. And so two things are happening here. First, that they are disobeying in that they did not to devote, to devote to destruction all of the spoil as they were commanded to do. And then secondly, that when they do bring something to the Lord, it was the stuff that they didn't want anyway. Well, the passage goes on, 1 Samuel 15, Saul, excuse me, Samuel calls out Saul. He confronts him on his lack of obedience. He says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And then Saul responds, and in so many words, he says, but wait a minute, we, we have, we've kept these things to offer to the Lord. He says, the people took of the spoil to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And you notice something of what Saul is doing here. Saul is concluding that disobedience is okay. Disobedience toward God is okay as long as a few sacrifices are offered every now and again, as if God could be balled off by those things. And so with that now, that storyline as the context, hear again Samuel's words in response to Saul's reasoning, Samuel says, has the Lord such great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obedience? He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the sacrifice or the fat of rams. Saul had deceived himself into thinking that religious ceremony was more important than love and obedience. And I think we often find ourselves tempted to do the very same thing. And so we, we spend our weeks, we spend our days, we spend the period of our days sinning against the Lord, and then we think, well, you know, it's no big deal because I logged into church on Sunday morning at 10 a.m., or I sent in my offering, and so everything is good. And we think that a few little religious ceremonies can somehow outweigh our disobedience. Jesus said, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
In the Matthew passage, the parallel passage, Jesus then goes on and he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The idea being, you do these two things and you're obeying all the law and the prophets. You devote yourself to those things and what you will naturally find yourself doing is obeying the commands of God. In the New Testament, Jesus would say, John chapter 14, he would say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I think it's so important that we hear that verse correctly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because we could hear it said this way, if you love me, prove it by keeping my commandments. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, if you love me, you will be keeping my commandments. The, the idea is obedience naturally comes as a response to our love for him. Now, we don't know exactly why this fella came. We don't know exactly why he posed this particular question that he did. Was he genuinely impressed with the Lord? Did he come desiring to learn from the Lord? Or was he like the others, trying to trap the Lord in some way? The text doesn't really tell us that. But what it does tell us in verse 34 is that Jesus likes where this guy is headed. Because notice what the Lord says there. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He says, you're right there on the edge. You're beginning to grasp. You're beginning to understand what it is that I have been teaching. This man seems to be getting that Jesus is calling him, in the same way that he's calling you and I that are watching this, to something deeper than a mere outward religious observance in our lives. And these guys were experts at observing the religious customs. This man seems to be getting that Jesus was calling men and women into relationship with him. And ladies and gentlemen, as we watch together this morning, I remind you that God is still calling us into that relationship. He's calling us to know him, to love him, to walk with him, and to pursue him, and to do that daily. That's God's desire for each one of us. And as we say so often when we, we come together here, a relationship with God begins by our confessing our need for God. It begins by confessing that we're sinners and that sin separates us from God, but that God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to deal with our sin problem. That's where a relationship with God begins. But notice, it, that's where it begins. Our relationship with God, it continues. And it continues with the daily pursuit of him and his will. There's a popular quote that is credited to St. Augustine, and it's this, it's that Augustine said, love God and do as you please. And it sounds contradictory. It sounds like, you know, love God and then go out and do whatever you want. Sin, who cares? That's not what Augustine is getting at at all. What Augustine is getting at is this. If God is your consuming passion, the consuming passion of your heart and your soul and your mind and even your strength, your physical body, well, then that which pleases God is going to be those things that please you as well. And so as you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you're trying to figure out what does God want from me? What are all the commandments? What are the things I can do and I can't do? Let me just say this to you. The thing you should focus your heart and your mind on, your soul and your strength on, is loving the Lord your God with all of those things. And you do that and all of these commands 
will be fulfilled. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, that is, uh, that's your command for us, is to know you and to love you and to pursue you and to put out of our lives any of those things that are going to hinder us in that pursuit, pursuit stop us, divide us. And so, Lord, I, I do, certainly I pray for the courage to do that, but Lord, I'm just praying for us as a body of believers that our walks with you would be walks that are marked by intimacy, a sweetness of fellowship. Lord, that each day we would, we would wake up and both formally by sitting down with your Bible, but just even informally, we would be pursuing you. Our heart's desire that day would be to know you, to be in fellowship with you, and to enjoy that fellowship. And Lord, I just believe with all my heart, as we do those things, as Jesus is teaching us here, all this other stuff that can distract us will just fall by the wayside. And so Lord, bless your people, Lord, uh, as we consider these words today. Give us a greater hunger to know you and to walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's finish up our time together uh, with a song, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm just going to share a couple things about the week that is ahead of us. And so uh, let's worship the Lord together.